Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello and welcome back to Behind the Knife. I'm Matt Chia, and I'm here with Dr. Carl Billamoria for this latest and final Journal Club episode from our surgical education team. Carl, thanks for being here today, and thanks for an awesome couple years doing the podcast together. Hey, Matt, thanks for setting all these podcasts up and thrilled to be here with you today. I'm also excited to welcome as a guest discussant to the podcast, Dr. Meg Smith. Dr. Smith is a vascular surgery fellow at the University of Michigan, having completed medical school and general surgery residency also in Ann Arbor. She's previously president of the House Officers Association there. Dr. Smith, thank you for your time and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. I'm also excited to introduce the first authors of the articles for today's episode, Drs. Brian Brassage and Darcy Foote. Dr. Brassage is in his final year of the general surgery program here at Northwestern and is headed off to the Cleveland Clinic next year for colorectal surgery fellowship. Dr. Foote is likewise a chief resident in general surgery at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan, and will be headed to Johns Hopkins next year for endocrine surgery fellowship. Dr. Brassage, Dr. Foote, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. So I'll start off by summarizing this first article, which the general theme that we'll be talking about today is focused on resident wellness, specifically with some attention to unions and other things that can be done to help improve resident wellness. This first article by Brassich et al. was titled The National Evaluation of the Association Between Resident Labor Union Participation and Surgical Resident Well-Being. This study was published in JAMA Open Network in 2021 and was a cross-sectional evaluation of the association between resident labor unions and wellness measures in 5,700 residents at 285 general surgery residencies in the U.S. Numerous models were created to adjust for factors including demographics, geography, program size, and in both logistic regression and instrumental variable analysis, the measured wellness outcomes, which included burnout, were not different between unionized and non-unionized programs. Further analysis did demonstrate that while the mean PGY-1 salary was also not different, there were other offered benefits that were more frequently seen at unionized programs, like four weeks of vacation and housing stipends. Dr. Brassich, congratulations on the massive work that I know you put into this investigation of two topics that I feel are generally pretty challenging and kind of hard to quantify, namely unions and wellness. Can you tell us a little bit more about the premise of this paper and what you think the findings should imply? Well, thank you, Matt, for the for the kind words. I, I'd be happy to talk about this paper. So The premise of this paper, what we were really looking to do is to try and answer a question that it didn't seem like we really had great data on. You know, as we got into the COVID-19 pandemic, we started to see more and more discussion about 
resident wellness and the role of unions in advocating for residents, you know, residents being a population who are somewhat vulnerable. They are tied to their institution. They don't necessarily have the autonomy in where they decide to go as other employees may. While at the same time, you know, having to work under conditions during COVID-19 and concerns about hazards associated with those conditions. Yeah, I think we all experienced some of those challenges working through the pandemic. And I think, unfortunately, at some situations, residents bore a lot of the brunt of the early pandemic when we we're trying to figure out how to best care for these patients in a new healthcare landscape. Absolutely. And we started to see just in the general media more and more discussion about whether unionization of residents is something that could potentially be beneficial, could be help to protect and advocate for residents. And there is an ongoing discussion that actually goes back several decades of whether or not unionization can and should be pursued by residents with proponents, largely suggesting that it allows for residents to advocate for themselves and to collectively bargain, being individuals who are otherwise not able to do so. While on the converse, you hear about concerns about a way that unionization may impact the professionalism of residents and may result in conflicts in the educational nature because residents, unlike most other employees in other fields, are also students in a way they're learning. And when we looked in the literature, we saw that there was really minimal to no hard data out there. We, we looked and tried to come up with a way where we would be able to actually investigate this question. So we wanted to look at a, a number of different outcomes that would be important to residents and that unions may potentially be able to affect. We looked at everything from wellness to a number of different measures of educational outcomes and burnout, which was our primary outcome. And then we also looked at a number of more financial type outcomes, things like salary, things like whether residents are receiving educational stipends or the amount of time that they get on vacation, other what would be termed fringe benefits. And you know, looking at kind of the findings of the paper, we certainly suggest that unionization does seem to be able to provide some benefits in that financial area. You do see that unionized programs largely do tend to have slightly better lengths of vacation for residents, a little bit more likely to have housing stipends, but that it really doesn't make a major detectable difference in the other measures. No, no big difference in rates of burnout or in the other measures of wellness. And so from that, you know, I think that you can draw the conclusion that unions may be able to help advocate for residents in certain aspects and in certain ways, but it's not something that's going to be a panacea for the challenges that are faced by residents. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, being at a program where we're not currently unionized, I think that there's been a lot of discussion about whether unionization has tangible benefits. And I think it's viewed very positively in general as a mechanism for residents or vulnerable trainees to have a voice in what happens in their training. But I think at the end of the day, burnout and wellness is a highly complex thing in surgical training, especially. And if it were just as simple as paying us more money and giving us more vacation, I think that would be maybe easier to achieve. And I, I think the reality of the issue is probably a little more complex than that. Dr. Smith, what do you think about some of these results? And then how does this fit in with your experience having led a House Officers Union and been at the forefront of some of those negotiations? Yeah, thanks, Brian. First, kind of congratulations on a really excellent study that I think 
as you mentioned, there's been debate going back about this topic for a long time, but no one kind of looked at data specifically. And I think, you know, man, Brian, you both touched on this. I think when we look, think about wellness and burnout, it's a really complex issue. And if it was as simple as unionization, then we wouldn't, especially within, we know it's a problem in surgery residency and surgery trainees, right? We, we wouldn't, you know, be still talking about it. We would kind of have the answer already. I think something that's really interesting is, you know, when you think about our training period, we kind of have this dichotomy where we're both employees, but also trainees. And so we're also, we're both influenced a lot by the educational environment that actually labor unions don't have a presence in and the kind of labor or employment sphere. And while those, there are some very clear distinctions, those two areas are somewhat muddled. I think the idea of having a voice is really important. And so I think a benefit that is hard to quantify is having a union does allow, in my experience, members from a, kind of across the hospital system to feel like they have a voice and a way or avenue for change. I think for a lot of trainees, our union acts as a way to really solidify fringe benefits and things like parental and maternity leave, housing stipends, salary support. All of those things are excellent. But for a small percentage of trainees that have bigger issues, it's actually very nice to have a third-party union where at Michigan, we have full staff that is employed by the union that has no relationship to the hospital that are able to advocate for us. So I think it allows for trainees to have a strong voice and advocate for change, but in an avenue where they're not kind of in that contradiction between the employment and still the trainee environment or their trainee roles. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that, as you said, the ability to measure the perception of having a voice or having some agency, I think that is inextricably linked with wellness. I think all of us are are reaching for that point where we're going to be independent physicians or surgeons and want to be in a position where we have ownership and agency and responsibility. And I think that that sense of actualizing you as an individual is something that maybe hasn't been touched on as much as the maybe lower hanging fruit of fringe benefits and compensation, for example. Yeah, exactly. I do think, you know, one interesting thing about this study is that some of the things that we looked at were really in like educational environment and that unions really don't have a role or aren't able to have a large footprint in changing things in the educational environment. So things like staffing ratios, call shifts, patient autonomy, kind of workload outside of the 80-hour the restriction. There's not a lot of opportunities for a union from an employment standpoint to impact or impart change in those realms. And so while I think from personal experience, a union is very beneficial, it is limited because there's not as much of an impact it can have in that educational sphere. One component of this that I'd like our group to chat about a bit is that in other industries, whether it's, you know, auto workers or in other organizations, they don't have the ACGME where there are already requirements put in place. How does the role of the unions fit with an industry that already has something of a regulatory body monitoring? There may be a gap, but I'd just like us to sort of talk about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is an, an important consideration and historically one of the major roles of unions when you think back to the gilded era, the industri- you know, the early industrial age, Upton Sinclair and the jungle is protection of employees who were largely being abused by their employers. 
But when you look back at residency in decades past as well, there were very limited protections for residents. And now in the modern era, there are these duty hour requirements and various protections that are in place through the ACGME. So I think that it definitely puts, to some degree, some guardrails up a limit to what unions would have been able to do, you know, if if residents had been under these sorts of conditions, unions could have been able to make a much larger difference. And so I think that that may, in some degree, dampen what unions are able to do. I think it's really interesting to think about residencies and the regulatory bodies that interact, because I think that sometimes those bodies are working against each other. We have to sit within the confines of the ACGME, the ABS, and our own individual institutions. And I've run up against this as a chief resident working to schedule things like paternity leave for my residents, coming from an institution that is not unionized. But interestingly, during my PGY2 year, which is prior to COVID and the kind of escalation of these discussions, we did entertain the idea of unionization. And that was because we didn't really feel like our institution was listening to us. And that really just this, the beginning of those discussions paved the way for us to create discrete ways to advocate for ourselves which I think are very well established now. And we've seen a lot of improvements. I mean, we've seen improvements in things like paternity leave. But then as I'm trying to advocate for my resident and finding time for things like paternity leave and time off, I find conflicts with how that aligns with the ACGME, their definition of a chief year, the ABS, their definition of a chief year. And it requires a fair amount of understanding the intricacies of these roles and trying to come up with ways where you're not violating roles. So even when a union is attempting to advocate for residents, they can be advocating for benefits that then are no longer able to be used by a particular specialty because it doesn't fit within the confines of the regulatory bodies for that specialty. Yeah, Darcy, I think you explained that really well. And 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 it's hard because, as I mentioned, there is a there's kind of two worlds that we straddle, both as a trainee and as an employee. And they're not necessarily clearly delineated at all times, but certainly there are ways where a union can provide labor benefits that, like you said, don't translate. So at University of Michigan, we have a, a wonderful parental leave policy in addition to a maternity leave policy, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to have to extend your training on an educational side. And so when we think about, to Dr. Memoria's part, about kind of the nuances of also having a second regulatory body, I think the ceiling of what the union can do and how much impact it can have on a day-to-day -day, potentially overall wellness and burnout is somewhat limited by the fact that there's somewhat tension and just ultimately a limit on how much a union can impact that educational sphere. Just as a microcosm of that, we can think back to the work hour restrictions and the first trial and how long it took for real change to be implemented on an actually on the ground basis for residents. And then when that had to be modified or changed, that took years and years, I think entire classes of residents experienced different versions of this. And I think that, like you said, there's a lack of mobility in terms of what the local organizations can achieve because we have to interface with these larger organizations. But at the same time, these larger organizations also don't have the experience and expertise to be available, I think, to residents. As a measure for voice, I, I sort of don't think immediately of any of these bodies as being very accessible to, say, an intern or two, or even a chief resident who is having a specific problem that needs to be addressed. It, it seems that there's a distance, a separation there that's not, that's not the most conducive. 
So, Darcy, you mentioned that your program entertained unionization, hoping that your your institution would sort of take your concern seriously as broadly as residents. And it's probably the way that most unions start at at programs. Are there other examples that you any of you have heard of 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 why a union gets started other than that, or is it largely always in response to not feeling heard? I would say again, anecdotal evidence from programs that i that I know of that have entertained the idea of unionizing or that have unionizing. It is often something along the lines of wanting a collective voice and ability to advocate for themselves. And in particular, there there's often some sort of specific goal or target that people will have. You know, it may be something like living in a very expensive city and wanting a housing stipend, which unable to get without the collective bargaining power that a union may be able to provide. And so, you know, in those situations, forming a union would, does potentially allow people to, to attain those goals. You know, as a previous president and I've been in Ann Arbor for a very long time. So a lot of people have come through the U of M doors and left. I've been contacted just a few times a year by trainees at other institutions, kind of asking for my thoughts on, you know, how they start kind of fact finding about the benefits of unionization at different training programs. And one thread I've heard, and again, this is anecdotal, you know, having a collective voice and through people that are employed by the union and not linked to the training program. It does allow people to bring up concerns without fear of retribution, whether that fear is valid or not. I think as we balance this role of employee and trainee, there can certainly be fears about retaliation or retribution or even kind of reputation. And so having been able to do it through a collective voice in a third party does allow people, I think, to speak, you know, potentially to speak very openly and bring up concerns in a way that they may not feel comfortable otherwise. I think it's also interesting to have someone that can have history behind what has been asked and what has been given and granted. One unique thing about residency is it's an employment opportunity that has a definite endpoint. And while we as surgery residents have possibly the longest period of time at an institution, our time is still relatively short. And so our experiences when we're in our junior years, we don't feel like we're in that position to ask for things. By the time we get to be more senior, we may be more busy, but certainly are just starting to understand the history of the institution, the history of the benefits that are offered to us and possibly the benefits that have been taken away. And so I think that that's where it really came from my institution is we had several surgery residents who had been there for several years and realized we've been asking for this for three or four years. But if I look back and start talking to people, this has more been like 10 or 15 years. And that's when people started having conversations and saying, really people aren't listening to us and maybe we should start making sure we have a seat at that table. And then when those unionization discussions started, that's when there was more attention. And then fortunately, our institution responded very, very positively and very generously and looked at those things that had been asked for. And we ended up receiving a lot of those things that had been asked for for a period of time and then also having a definitive time where we have a seat at the table to talk about our contracts and make sure that those are evaluated on an annual basis. So I think the union also provides, you know, more historical context to to the whole scope of training at an institution as opposed to just a period of time where someone is a resident. And I will say that's also kind of an interesting point you bring up that not only is a, a union a, a way to sort of have some leverage in negotiation, but even just bringing up the idea of unionizing, it seems like, can sometimes enact some change. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. During our work on this topic, we heard from some residency programs that the time when they're forming the union and then the every three to five year renegotiation is a contentious time. And it leads to some interactions between the faculty and the residents that are, again, sort of contentious. I don't know if you've heard about this or whether this is an issue at your programs. So I was president of our, we call it the HOA, our House Officer Association, during our last contract negotiations. You know, there is definitely some tension at that table. And that table that includes both administrators from the hospital, but also different program directors and program coordinators from the hospital. I think that especially in kind of during COVID and post-COVID, there are some real competing interests that can be very contentious. Ultimately, I think that as long as it's approached professionally as long, and you are presenting yourself as advocating for the larger voice, kind of an individual negative impact can be kind of avoided. But certainly when you're sitting across the table, it's not always an enjoyable or very friendly experience. Did you feel like it left that room or was it more more just around that table that that contention could be felt? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, from a clinical and educational standpoint, I did not think anything left that room in terms of how it impacted myself or other members of the resident or trainee bargaining group. But I think probably my relationship with the hospital administrators potentially that were not related with education, it would not be a necessarily a overly warm relationship now either. And I just I just find that pretty unfortunate to hear. Not surprising, I think, but maybe unfortunate because I think the trainees in the room, and I would hope the majority of attendees can recall what it's like to be in a trainee position. And even as surgical culture and residency culture has moved and progressed and begun to modernize, I think that from most people looking in on the whole enterprise would be a little bit astonished to see people as well-trained and as well-educated as any of us working as many hours for somewhere between $15 and $20 an hour, just on a, a pure compensation for time basis. And I think some of that engenders, back to Carl's initial question, some of the source of these grumblings or the, the momentum that leads to talk about unionization comes from, well, if a resident gets replaced, then a PA or an APN or a CRNA is taking over at orders of magnitude more compensation and more benefits than a trainee. And I think that discrepancy tends to grate, especially when the roles seem to have a lot of overlap to them. And while I would not even begin to argue that we're the same or interchangeable, 
there is some service component that we provide to the institution being run by these administrators, but maybe is less well appreciated uh, when it's taken for granted. Yeah, I think one challenge, and this is true regarding wellness, regardless of if a training program is part of a union or not, and I experienced this dealing with kind of individuals from the labor relations department, is that many of the people that are making decisions may not understand the nuances of resident training and specifically surgical training. And it's hard to explain that to someone without that medical experience or background. And so there's often some tension of trying to understand the kind of dollar signs and economics of hospitals that drive a lot of the decisions and explain how our training paradigm, where we're kind of coming in and out in very short windows. And so I think there's tension and some frustration that, like I said, regardless of unions, that many individuals that are ultimately involved in making decisions for us may not understand the kind of specifics of surgical training. Well, it sounds like a great opportunity both for trainees to get their hand if they may want to hold administrative roles in the future of hospital leadership to understand what it's like and what some of the language and priorities are, and vice versa, it is an opportunity for the people in these roles to understand us better. Because I have to say that this is a great pivot to the next study where we're going to talk about program directors and how well they understand residents. They are probably the people who are best placed to understand us, but as we might hear, the, the level of understanding might vary a little bit. The key question for this overarching discussion is, what can we actually do practically to improve the residency experience? And I thought this paper tied nicely with the first paper to try and investigate the question, even though I think neither is providing a be-all, end-all panacea answer to the question. This paper was titled, How Program Directors Understand General Surgery Resident Wellness by Dr. Foote et al. It was published last year in the Journal of Surgical Education. In this study, qualitative analysis was performed of semi-structured interviews conducted with 15 program directors at general surgery programs participating in the second trial. The aim was to identify how program leadership actually can intervene to improve wellness in general surgery residents, and the authors found that program directors leveraged many different sources of information both within the program and from outside of the program and then translated that into specific responses and strategies to improve wellness. I think a very rational, evidence-based approach, even if it's not strictly driven by published data. However, program directors did find that there were many discrepancies between faculty and resident perceptions of wellness that were barriers to the intervention. Dr. Foote, congratulations on this work, which I think begs the exact question that I think most programs directors continue to ask us, and many of them have asked me directly in in my role in the vascular second trial. Wellness is important. Burnout in surgery is real. But what can we actually do about it? That's a great question. And that's certainly a question the second trial is focusing on, right, and is poised to give us insight on. This paper describes the experience of 15 program directors, as you said, And there were three major themes that emerged. First, where are programs getting this data on resident wellness? Second, the ways that they can utilize the data. And third, the barriers and frustrations that they encounter along the way. The first item, obtaining data on resident wellness, I think highlights the importance of accurate information. And it really needs to be taken from the source, which is the residents. 
residents need avenues to make their concerns known to a program. But the program directors highlighted that a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to work. And that highlights the need for the resident voice, which is what we're talking about with resident labor unions, right? A mechanism for agency. Other methods apart from asking the residents directly included faculty feedback, internal assessments. Some programs even developed their own novel assessments that they administered weekly. And then program directors talked about getting in the trenches and directly experiencing the resident workflow in order to identify problems and think about solutions. So our paper collates a variety of mechanisms for facilitating feedback, and I think that can be a useful place for programs to start structuring their deep dive into their program, into how their residents are doing and what they need. The second theme was about using that information to improve three areas, wellness, education, and culture. It allowed them to prioritize interventions and also demonstrate that changes were happening because if residents don't know that that information that they're giving is actually being used, then there can be some dissatisfaction. We also noted that education and wellness were intrinsically linked. In order for people to feel fulfilled as people, they also need to feel fulfilled at work. So a lot of interventions that program directors talked about were focusing on impacting the educational environment and educational value for residents. And one of my favorite quotes was from a program director who was trying to make sure their residents had enough time away from work, but their residents kept bringing it back to how can we be well at work? And then finally, program directors talked about the struggles they had with promoting the wellness agenda, whether it be from conflicting opinions between groups of residents, lack of disclosure because residents were concerned about things such as mental health and confidentiality naysayers among faculty or even residents, and lack of finances and money to promote wellness programming. Ultimately, they spoke of innovative thinking, the importance of leadership support, and really persistence in trying to make a difference, and that ultimately went a long way in making an impact. And congratulations again. I thought this was fantastic reading just because it summarized a lot of key points from the people who are the most directly in charge of residents, the people who are most able to hopefully understand what's happening and who are best placed to be on the ground to make the interventions. I love that quote specifically about wellness at work and wellness outside of work, because I think there's a lot of emphasis on getting people away from the hospital because it might be easily measurable. You spend hours outside. You're not logged in. You're not on Epic. You're not bad swiping into the parking garage or the hospital. But being able to be well and be actualized and be responsible and be treated like an adult at work, that can have real tangible benefits to wellness. And I think that your work here was a great way of digging into this. Yeah, I think that concept of Having meaning at work and fulfillment within your professional space is so important and really, really came out in this study. Can we talk a little bit about that first part, the data gathering and finding out what the problem is? I think the default way has been to distribute a survey. And naturally, we're guilty of that ourselves being investigators in this space. But a, a survey seems to be at least a commonly used method to try and gather a lot of input from a lot of different people. But we are all well aware of how much survey fatigue, especially in the pandemic, the, the number of surveys just proliferated. I think that there are natural limitations to one program director or a couple program directors trying to sit down and 
interview and get real authentic conversations with every single one of their residents every week or every couple of weeks. It just doesn't seem practical. Yeah, program directors really described a variety of methods. And you do talk about survey fatigue, but if you think about innovative ways to overcome that, coffee, bagels, and some dedicated educational time can go a lot of ways. So, you know, some things that program directors talked about, I meet with residents one-on-one, I meet with a class one-on-one, I meet with the entire residency. Having different avenues and different spaces where residents can feel comfortable sharing in that space, I think is important. But they also talked about how certain residents aren't going to speak up in any of those scenarios and that an anonymous option really helps them to get realistic feedback. Something that our residency program has utilized to kind of create anonymity, but also be able to talk about things real time is we use a, it's a program called Poll Everywhere, but it allows people to give responses to a particular question and it all flashes up on the screen, but we don't know who actually put which response. And so I think there's a lot of ways to facilitate that sort of feedback. And you have to think about your residents and how it's going to be best for your residents understanding that everyone's unique and there needs to be multiple ways for that feedback to occur. Yeah, I think that that's one of the big keys is that, I mean, there's just so much variety in how people feel comfortable or how people will share what is bothering them. There are certainly people who are more than happy to go out of their way to find somebody and tell them what the issues are and make them aware. And then there are other people who are much more likely to just kind of assume that this is the way that it is and put their head down and not say anything unless someone really prompts them for like what for what's bothering you. And those are often the people who you would worry about are going to be suffering from from symptoms of burnout, having issues from wellness, and nobody will be able to pick it up because they just sort of hide it in their back pocket. And so I think that that's really important. And one of the big challenges is just the fact that every resident is different. I think, Darcy, what you talked about as well really highlights the necessity of psychological safety in these efforts that people don't feel comfortable and safe kind of speaking these concerns, either individual or group, then they're unlikely to to do so. And kind of tying it back, that's certainly a wonderful benefit of a union that's kind of an, an anonymous voice. I think an interesting question that comes to mind about this, though, is that a lot of this puts the emphasis on trainees to come up with the solutions themselves, which I think as you know, we're going through this often for the first time are inundated with work and stressors. And so I think we have to also leverage external resources so that while residents may be bringing concerns, it's not realistic or fair to expect us to have answers that will also significantly benefit wellness as well. I think that makes sense. It's hard enough to survive residency and to then carry the torch to advocate for yourself, to be in other spaces that are also uncomfortable for us, and then try to understand the larger structures that influence what we do on a day-to-day basis, it's a pretty tall ask. So I think having program leadership who is supportive and at the end of the day, broader leadership within the entire health system for the trainees who are helping make the entire enterprise possible, that's essential to any interventions. Another mechanism that program directors described, which I think you know, not only gives their residents the knowledge that their program director cares, but it's a really important mechanism for finding out the real problems was kind of going to the source, getting in the trenches or 
one of the program directors phrased it as going to the Gemba, which is part of kind of lean and Kaizen and, and quality terminology. But it's that idea of them going directly into the resident space, kind of living the day or maybe not whole whole day, but a period of time in a resident's shoes and finding out what those day-to-day frustrations are that are really taking away from their wellness at work. And they commented on how some of the solutions that they gathered from just being in that space and in the resident's shoes were really simple interventions, but it allowed certainly residents to feel like they were cared for, but then also provided information that for some instances, solutions were uh, apparent and easy. That's a great suggestion. It's one of the pillars of good qualitative research anyways, is to observe in the natural habitat, so to speak, and to try and replicate the situation of study as faithfully as you possibly can. I just think it's it's such a unique way of looking at it. And it's simple, but it's also elegant in its ability to actually put the program leadership directly in the Crocs or Calzeros or whatever your shoe of choice might be. I think it's a great way of getting direct, tangible insight. On that final note, can we talk about any take-homes that you all have from the discussion or things that current trainees or program directors or hospital leadership should know when they're approaching this? I think our whole discussion has been talking about the importance of the resident voice and the fact that they need to have opportunities to share frustrations and that can be through a variety of mechanisms. But I think if you think about practically how that's going to happen, it also requires residents to be willing to be at that table and have those conversations and take ownership of making changes. I think that a lot of the times as surgery residents, we put our head down and just kind of carry on. And I don't think that that's helpful when we're talking about making changes. And so My takeaway is to be vocal and to advocate for change and to bring problems up so that solutions can at least be explored. I would say one of the big take-home points as well from our discussion today seems to be that there isn't really, you know, a one-size-fits-all generalized solution to a lot of these problems, whether it's the best way to introduce resident voice into advocating for themselves as a collective group or necessarily in the way to get feedback from residents to understand what's going on. There's so much individuality both among residents as well as at different institutions and the way that they're structured and the way that trainees and the administration interact. I think that there are a lot of very promising tools and mechanisms out there to do so, but I think that it has to be customized. You can't just sort of pick one thing to do and assume that that's going to work for everybody in your program or work for your program because it worked for somebody else. Yeah, I think that, you know, what, what strikes me the most is, regardless of the, the setup, the benefit of leveraging institutional knowledge along with people on the ground. I think, as Darcy said earlier, you know, residents come in and go and often don't, you know, not everyone has been at the same institution for 13 years like me, and so may not understand the historical changes of their, their program and their hospital. And so I think it's important to have multiple stakeholders, both from the administrative side, the trainee side, and then also individuals that understand how those processes have changed in order to come up with impactful, meaningful steps forward. I would also just add that I think as trainees, we have this weird dichotomy of being both an employee and a trainee. And I think I can, at least from an anecdotal experience, you know, we're often very concerned about 
maintaining this perfect trainee image in terms of reputation. And so it may be that in order to make some of these impactful change, we have to take a little bit of risk, whether that's at the negotiating table within your own program, but to really kind of push the homeostasis of the, the institution. It may take leaning into that employee stance a little bit more, even if that feels uncomfortable, kind of in how we've traditionally gone through our days in the, the kind of trainee hat that we often wear. I think you'll often hear me talk about how the trainees are at the center of our universe. And certainly it's about patient care, but we really, really are focused in on the trainees. And the take-home point for me is that we're all very busy. We're all doing lots of things, but you have to keep in mind the often precarious and difficult position that trainees are in. And I think what you're hearing and what you're seeing and what we're seeing from all the research that we've done is that the residents are looking to have their voice heard. And we all wanted that too as residents. And now, you know, we need to make sure that we're providing the vehicle for them to be able to do that. And if they can't, and and if you're not responsive to what they're saying, you know, unionization or, you know, other sorts of efforts become the only option. And so, I think maintaining a healthy dialogue and actually listening into the residents' concerns is is paramount. Carl, can I ask you what's next? I mean, we've talked a lot about work that has been done and what's coming forward. Can you give us a little insight about what might be coming down the pipeline? I think moving forward, the work that we've done in the second trial is going to be expanded not only to programs that have been in the trial, but we're going to expand it to all surgical programs. And so all programs will be getting information on their wellness, on their mistreatment, on their learning environment, along with the tools to improve. And that's just the start. You know, we've recently, you know, relocated the coordinating center for the second and third trials to Indiana University, Department of Surgery, and we are really excited about the next set of work that we're doing with the American College of Surgeons and the ACGME. And a lot of that is really focused comprehensively, not just on residents, but on improving the entire department's approach to well-being, mistreatment, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the learning environment. And so more to come on the exact structure of the third trial, but nonetheless, we'll be very excited to continue to advance well-being through that work. I think it's going to prompt a lot more discussion, both on Twitter and and other spheres. I encourage everyone to keep an open dialogue, as we've mentioned here. I think that whatever mechanism is the best for each individual person, each individual resident, each individual program is going to vary. But I think the common thread in all of that is continuing to talk. We thank everyone for listening and tuning in to our series over the past couple of years. A reminder, you can find Carl at Carl Billamoria and myself at Chia underscore MD. Follow Behind the Knife at at Behind the Knife and on the main website. Good luck to the next season of Surgical Education Podcasters. We're looking forward to seeing what they all have in store to share. Until then, take care. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.